It's an especially fitting final stanza since the theme we've been looking at for several weeks has been dwelling on certain things. And with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4 and also to note that we're going to look at a number of different passages in the book of Philippians. So you're going to want to have that at your fingertips. Now tonight, what appeared to be by God's providence, the final sermon, at least for now in this series, looking at aspects of the Christian thought life. What do we think about? What do we focus our thoughts upon? Next week, the plan is to have a guest with us, a seminarian, as several of us elders and pastor are going to be at classes. And then the week following that, we pick up with the Sunday school year with having 2 Samuel in the evening and the catechism in the morning. But this evening we come to the sixth and the final term in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, you say in the scriptures that you have exalted your word even above your name. And that is hard to grasp when we think that your name is above all things. But indeed, together these things meet Your word is faithful and reveals who you are and what your desires are for us. We ask this evening that you would please fill us with a hunger that comes from you to be transformed more and more to be like our Savior. Where we are indifferent, Lord, where we turn back to sin, we ask that you would please soften us, dig up the fallow and the hard ground, grow us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The sermons of the past two weeks, in case you weren't here, looked at some of the terms that preceded this one, commendable. And we saw that each of those two prior terms, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, required a little bit of extra clarification. That's because the terms used by the apostle don't perfectly overlap with the way that many people use those same words in English. We saw that the word lovely isn't so much about whatever is aesthetically beautiful, but about moral purity and spiritual beauty. This evening, however, this sixth term requires very little clarification because the Greek term overlaps almost perfectly with the English use of it when it says, think on whatever is commendable. To commend somebody is to praise them for something good that they have done, or a good attribute. And so it means something praiseworthy, something worthy of honor or admiration. What is commendable? Do we think on those things? Is that one of the intentional, habitual focuses of your thought life, to think on what is commended by God and by his people? And that's clearly the context of this, not just any kind of commendation. For instance, somebody might be commended for an especially excellent backstroke. They might be commended for having a wonderful skill at their vocation or in singing. But here the context in verse 9 has to do with putting into practice the godliness 
that the Philippian church had observed in Paul and the other missionaries. And so it has to do with the commendation of a godly character of a faithful life. And the Holy Spirit would have us dwell upon this idea tonight as we come to the end of this list, understanding that it is your calling in Christ, ultimately, to receive his commendation. I know that when we are thinking carefully about our lives and thinking honestly, it is hard to imagine receiving much of a commendation from an omniscient, holy Lord. God is not just omniscient, but he is holy in his omniscience. Meaning that his knowledge of every secret thing and every known thing is a righteous knowledge. And when you think that he sees to the very depths of the heart, it's hard to imagine that he would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet he says he shall. And that's because the Christian, the true converted soul, has a certain humility given by the Lord, and it is hard for us to see the work that the Holy Spirit performs. And yet it is real. Anyone in whom there is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will produce fruit. And often, by the Lord's kindness, it's hidden from our own eyes, and yet it should not be so hidden that he and the world is unaware of it. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This same Jesus, of course, says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But there should be, by God's help, a growing abundance of faithfulness such that the world, and especially the church, can't miss that there is fruit. Jesus says, if anyone gives even a cup of water in my name, I receive it as unto myself. The Lord wants you to have a commendable life. But his means for that comes through dwelling on how we are to live and by faith taking very intentional steps to walk in that path. Your life will hardly be that kind of commendable life without intentionally falling before the Lord and saying, show me the path. And we find that in many different places. Where do we look to find that which is commendable, that which is praiseworthy? Certainly all throughout the Bible. You find Numberless examples. You have a woman, for instance, who received commendation named Dorcas. Dorcas was commended for the fact that she cared for some of the poorest in her community. She made them garments with her own hands. At a time when, I would remind you, pretty much all the garments were made by hand. This was a great labor. It was more than a hobby. It was something that she deeply desired to provide for others. And then you could look in 1 Peter and you see in that epistle, the apostle commends those who suffer injustice patiently. That doesn't mean they're indifferent to injustice or okay with it, but they don't lash out at the Lord or crave vengeance in their own power. We could look in many places outside of the Bible as well. Christian history is excellent for that. I would strongly advise you to develop a habit that there's always in your reading rotation, kind of like I was going to say TV has different channels. I guess it still does for some. There are different ways to access kinds of programming. You always need a slot of Christian biography and Christian history. I'd encourage you have both male and female examples from within that. Learn from our past. See how we can incorporate the best examples. But this evening, our focus is going to be particularly on those whom we find the apostle commending in the book of Philippians itself. This makes sense. He says, 
Think on whatever is commendable, but it's easy to pass over. In this epistle in particular, he commends many different people. We're only going to look at three. He commends many different people, and this is something we should do as a kind of, you know, having it on our radar when we read the Bible. Pay attention to whom God and his prophets and apostles commend. These are your best examples of who to imitate and how to live. So I invite you to turn with me and look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, as we look at three of these different persons. The first is a man named Timothy. Timothy was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with him in missionary work. And then later on, Paul appoints Timothy to be a pastor. And he spends the remainder of his life, to the best of our knowledge, in that work as a pastor. But here, at this point in Timothy's ministry, he's serving as a kind of messenger. They don't have a mail service like we have. If you wanted to deliver a message at that time in the ancient world, and supposing you didn't work with the government, they would often use the military for that purpose. But if you're a private person and you want to convey a message, unless you had someone of your own, you had the the wealth to send your own person, you were basically at the mercy of someone else who happens to be going there. And so you might go into town and post essentially something like, uh, you know, seeking someone going to Ephesus and some amount of compensation to be arranged for them to carry your message. And then you hope they deliver it. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient world to send several messages by several messengers that are identical because it was hard to ensure your message gets there. Hear what Paul says about Timothy, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now, many people have wondered why Paul is, in a sense, being so mean to the other Christians around him at this time, that he doesn't consider any of them worthy. And I think it's most likely he's not talking about other Christians. He's talking about people who are available to be sent When he says, I have no one like Timothy, who are genuinely concerned. He doesn't want to just send any messenger to them and say, bring me back word of how they're doing spiritually. Timothy is rare in that he, like a son with a father, is concerned to do what is right on behalf of the Christian family. This then teaches you something of what we should seek to have reflected in our own lives. One, that when we are tasked With anything involving our Christian calling, though broadly anything, really, if it's our duty, we should do it with diligence as children ultimately unto our Heavenly Father. There is no slack hand in the church. Whatever we do, the scripture says, we do with all our might as unto the glory of the Lord. Now, of course, we fall short of that all the time. And yet, relatively speaking, some do excel. And they don't do it by accident. They set their minds in faith to learn the way of righteousness and to walk in it and to get up. The book of Proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times and yet he gets up again. And so we're called in this way to a selfless concern for the welfare of all Christians as we carry out the Lord's work. Turn with me 
over in your Bible to verse 25 of chapter 2. And here is a second person, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. By the way, I recall watching, many years ago, watching a documentary about house churches in China. And I learned that it's very common in Christian home churches that Chinese nationals will take on a Christian name at the time of their conversion. And the pastor in particular was named Epaphroditus. It was wonderful to think that the legacy has carried on. I'm sure it wasn't chosen simply because they liked the sound. They chose it because he was commended. And here, see why he is commended. What is it that is praiseworthy about this convert from Philippi? He's one of the people from this very city. And remember, Paul is persecuted and he leaves. Well, Epaphroditus goes with him. It's very bold. Verse 25 says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice, and seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and, note these words, honor such men, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus is a remarkable figure in the early church because of the priorities that he has. He places ministry, to which he's been called, even above his own physical life. Now, sometimes that can be pushed to a point of imprudence. Paul himself tells Timothy in another place that, He needs to mind his body. He says, take a little bit of wine for your stomach ailments. There's a need to balance things out. There's a book that I would recommend, a book called The Legacy of Sovereign Joy. In fact, it's available free in several places online. But it's a book summarizing some of the struggles, but then ultimately the triumph of faith in the lives of several figures, Augustine, Luther, and Calvin, as we come up towards October and we think about the Reformation. And particularly, and it describes the work ethic of all three, but also points out that all three, probably because of their work ethic, dealt with tremendous physical ailments. And Calvin himself was warned and warned and warned that he needed to strike a balance. He ended up passing away fairly young in his very early 50s. On the one hand, there's that caution. On the other hand, imagine somebody saying that they're simply not going to venture anything for Christ because they don't want to risk danger. We would not have missionaries in every part of the world if everyone was afraid of every sickness, if everyone was afraid of every danger. And the church won't stand long here either if Christians were to say, well, if my bodily life or my financial position is jeopardized, then I'm going to keep the faith to myself. We are all called to a soldier-like commitment, and that's what he says in verse 25. He 
describes him as a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. He didn't come to faith. Epaphroditus didn't come to faith for therapy. He didn't come to faith simply to have a sense that he belongs to something bigger than himself. But he has come under the lordship of Christ. And so I'd ask you, is that you? To whatever extent it is, give the honor, give the glory to the Lord. That is his work. It's not natural to the heart of man to want to serve a holy God selflessly. But to whatever whatever extent it is not, I would exhort you, pray and believe that the Lord is powerful to change us. Paul wasn't chosen because he already had the right heart. The Lord gave him the right heart. And we need that as well. Look with me then at chapter 4, verse 15, at the third commendation. I've somewhat misled you here because here Paul does not commend one person. He commends an entire church. And it's the Philippian church to whom he's writing. Out of all the churches in the region that they're in, a large area, larger by far than Maricopa County, which has so many churches. By this point, they have probably dozens of churches, dozens of home churches meeting. And here, Paul commends the Philippian church. See what he says. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that is, when they were first sent out, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Mind you, the Apostle Paul was by no means above working with his own hands. When he was not directly provided for by a church, he would simply set up shop. He and the missionaries with him, they would work with their own hands in order they might not burden the new converts who had been found there. But at other times, he rejoiced that God raised up people who were willing to partner with him in ministry in order that he might give his full time to the apostolic mission. And here you see, out of all the churches, though there were many believers in them, apparently the Philippian church was the only one that determined to partner financially, materially, with the apostle. The text does not tell us why that was, only that it was. In this passage, then, the Holy Spirit would bring back to us that there should be, it is commendable, it is praiseworthy, there should be this desire, out of whatever the Lord has provided, that we serve not only this local church, but also look for ways to bless others. Others outside the church, and especially other church plants. From time to time, we have those opportunities. Sometimes we take offerings for other church plants in our region and classes southwest, other times for others outside, or even other non-URC churches that we're familiar with. But the Lord gives us these opportunities, and here he calls it acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. You want to know what God smiles upon, what he commends? It's prioritizing the glorification of Christ in the world by the lifting up of his word and the gathering of his people. That doesn't look glamorous to the unconverted person. There's nothing glamorous in the way of the world to look at what the church does. 
But the Lord looks at those sacrifices and he will not forget them. He will honor them. There are more in the book of Philippians. We won't look at all of them this evening. It's simply to say to you, to exhort you, as you think on these examples and others like this, as you work through the scriptures and look at places where there are commendations, these are opportunities from the Holy Spirit. Not simply to be thankful that they lived that way, but to stop and to make it a matter of prayer. In fact, the best way to read the scripture is always, in a sense, on your knees. To read it with a prayerful heart, to be asking God, teach me in this passage what you desire to form in me and to do through me. And when we read these commendations, then we have the direction for our life. Look with me once more at verse 8, which underscores just how important this is. Verse 8, chapter 4. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise... Think on these things. It's as if the apostle is saying he doesn't want you to miss even a small bit of the goodness that the Lord would form in and through you. And think how much that doesn't fall into these categories that we've been looking at for several weeks. How much of that there is. If there be anything impure, anything ugly, morally speaking, if there be anything unjust, There is so much of that to think about. It comes to us easily. It searches us out. If there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. By way of conclusion, I do want to exhort you concerning a danger, though. And the danger is to be driven by the desire for earthly commendation, to receive the praise of others. Jesus says, if that's what drives you, you have your reward already. If you grow to seem like a Christian, but not to be a Christian, you have your reward already. We are to seek this commendation ultimately from our God and Father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus says, When you give to those in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That is a challenge. I think all of us feel that, to be satisfied with the commendation that comes from the Lord. Now, often, the Lord in his mercy does grant that some people do commend you, and it feels nice to be commended for something good. The point is not to despise commendation or to put on a false humility when somebody praises a good thing. But it is to be driven by God's commendation. How do we gain that mindset Look with me at one last place in Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. Because here, the apostle describes to us how you gain and maintain that mindset. How do you come back to that mindset when you stray away from it? Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes on the example of those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven.
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When Paul condemns this idolatry of bodily appetites, it's not because he hates the body. The goal is not to escape the body. It's to live in a heavenly fashion, in a way that will match the age to come. And he says, set your mind on the fact that, one, you have a heavenly citizenship. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you no longer belong to this world. You live in it. You are not of it. And so you have been transferred out of that kingdom into this kingdom. Your life in this age is that long. Not even. You'd have to press your fingers together and measure the space between them. When you get down to the atoms, when you compare it to how long the Lord has called you to everlasting life in Christ. These are the things we set our minds on, the things that are permanent as a foretaste. And in that, the Lord forms in you joy. There is a joy that belongs to holiness. We have in the best moments of godliness tasted some of that. And there is more to be found. You don't grow in the mindset of the Christian by simply, in a sense, buckling down, using your old nature to force yourself to do what is right. You are transformed from glory to glory as you look upon the righteousness of God as joyful release from the bondage of sin. Hear these words from Augustine. He says, describing his own conversion, Bear in mind, he felt that he was enslaved to sin for decades of his life and that it kept him from coming to faith. But then at the time of his conversion, he says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. God, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation, my sovereign joy. That means that God is able to transform you, even as it says the Lord Jesus Christ shall transform us by his power. He's able to drive from you the mindset of this world. It comes as we look to him in the word, as we seek to walk in his path. But then more and more we are transformed in our minds, and for our lives. May the Lord help us to grow in this. It gives me such joy to have been acquainted with older believers who reflect this. I think all of us need to seek to have those relationships. And maybe even this evening, as we spend time together, you'll have some of that formed for you as well. May the Lord bless us in that. Let's ask his blessing even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us into the joy that you create through ministry, through consecration. Heavenly Father, we confess before you that this world is so thick with temptation and distraction, and our old man is attracted to so much of it. We ask that you would please renew us by your power. Drive from us by your sovereign joy, the love of the world, and more and more give us a love of Christ himself. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.